Hello, I'm Emile Bellet, founder of BestPod and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. Today, I speak to Marin Somerset Webb. She's the editor-in-chief of Money Week, the UK's best-selling financial magazine and contributing editor to the Financial Times. In this episode, we talk about the power of shareholders, how you can vote in company decisions, and be the change you wish to see in the world. The stress of buying a house can feel overwhelming and very time-consuming. There are so many things to consider, and you definitely don't want to miss anything or get it wrong. Moneybox have helped hundreds of thousands save for their first homes with their market-leading lifetime ISA. You'll also be relieved to find out that Moneybox now offers a free mortgage advice service that supports you from your first steps to your doorstep. They cover everything from finding and securing the right mortgage all the way until your completion. A dedicated case manager will help you manage all the admin between solicitors, lenders and estate agents, making your home buying experience all the more stress-free. Please note your home could be repossessed if you do not keep up repayment on your mortgage. A government LISA withdrawal charge may apply. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Today we're here to talk about your latest book, Share Power, how ordinary people can change the way that capitalism works and make money too. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, you know, it's been knocking around in my head for quite a long time. <laughs> and uh, there were a few sort of drivers towards finally getting towards writing it. And what, one is that um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I saw this uh, fabulous resurgence in the interest people ordinary people have in markets. You know, people had time, they had a bit of cash and an awful lot of new investors came to the market and started looking at it and trying to figure out how it works. So that was exciting. And at the same time, a lot of companies, as we know, at the beginning of the pandemic, they ran out of cash, right? So they were all coming to the stock market looking for new investment. And suddenly the stock market was working in the way that it's supposed to work, uh, connecting companies and investors, companies raising money, investors getting into that, uh, lots of new IPOs. So it was a very exciting time. So that was one of the drivers. Uh, the other uh, driver behind it was noticing something that many people have noticed over the last five to 10 years, which is that young people in particular say that they are falling out of love with capitalism. And you get this sort of yeah. bizarre dynamic of people living inside democratic capitalist economies, but somehow yearning for, for socialism, which of course is, is very bizarre to older people who, who've been watching over the, the last 50, <laughs> 60 years, how disastrously socialism always fails and what misery it brings. So you look at that yeah. and you think, gosh, what's going on here? And it looks like one of the reasons people are turning against the idea of capitalism, which is a, a huge mistake, by the way, because you can't turn against capitalism because people are natural capitalists. It is the natural human state. You know, we're, we're improvers, we're accumulators, we're competitors. Yeah. It's just the way human beings are. There isn't another system that works with the way humans are. You can't reject it. It just, it just is, right? Anyway, so, but it looks like people are, are thinking, well, this isn't a great system. I prefer a, a different kind of system because they feel increasingly unengaged with it. They have this idea that there's a class of, of the super rich and then there are corporations, all of which operate in some kind of sphere above and beyond ordinary people, that we have no, no engagement, we have no control over the way corporates uh, run our economies. And this is a problem, we feel separated. And I thought it was time that someone sat down and explained 
that corporations aren't separate to us. Uh, we are them and they are us. You know, we are employees, we are suppliers, uh, we are customers, and we are also crucially, and particularly in the UK, crucially we are, the majority of us, we are shareholders. We own these companies. We don't know that we own them. We don't actively own them, but we do own them. So we, we are part of what we think we are separate from. And if we adjust the system to make it work for us, we can have some kind of control over the way the corporate world works as well. So these two things coming together made me think, you've had this in your mind for ages, if you're going to write this book, you'd really better get on and write it. And actually I should mention the third thing, which is that I'm very, very against long non-fiction books. I know, and you know, and everyone listening knows that almost nobody, my husband is the only exception I've ever met, almost nobody picks up a non-fiction book longer than a couple of hundred pages and reads it from beginning to end. This just doesn't happen. So when I came across a company called Short Books, yep. who allow you to write short books about whatever it is that you want to write about. So instead of having to write 85,000 words or 120,000 words, you can write 30,000 words. I thought, well, here we go, I can do that. And not only can I do it, but someone might read it from beginning to end. And I've read it and it's very easy to read, and, but it's also a bit of a rabbit hole because you throw th so many ideas and I was like, wow, I'm super interested in that and I'm going to research that. So you don't want to see my copy of the book. <laughs> that has like post-its everywhere on notes and stuff. It, I think it's fascinating. Um, oh, thank you. I think the, also the starting point for me, like, you know, talking to women on a daily basis about their, you know, money management and investing and, and why women should, and anyone like should invest money. A lot of people don't realize that they they actually own shares, especially via you know their pensions, via their you know stocks and share ISA. So they are um, the owner of some of these big companies we're talking about. Yeah, I mean this is really the most interesting thing is that people feel like investing is something that other people do, and yeah. it is true that there was a period when it was definitely something that other people did. So if you go back to the fifties, sixties, etc., you know quite a large chunk of the UK stock market was owned by individual investors, but only 3% of the population owned shares at all. So that 3%, they owned a lot of shares. They owned yeah. a lot of the market, but there was a tiny number of them. Now today, if you are in work in the UK, uh, you are very likely to have a, a pension. You'll have been auto-enrolled into a pension. You could opt out, but almost nobody does. And so around 80% of the people in work in the UK have an auto-enrollment pension. And that means that they are by default invested in equities. They own shares. And then there are another couple of million people with a SIP, with a self-invested personal pension. There are a couple of million people in uh, with stocks and shares ISAs. And then there are loads of people that just have investment accounts one way or another. So the percentage of the population that actually owns shares is huge. It's just that the vast majority of us, that shift has passed us by. We haven't noticed that we own and we don't know how we own and we don't know what to do about owning either. So it, we, we have it, but we don't know that we have it and we don't use it. Huge shame. Yeah. And basically, companies will use the stock market to, to get some money, to get some funding, to, to, to grow, to make acquisitions and stuff. And mm -hmm. in exchange, yeah, you, you get shares in these companies, you become an owner, but you also have some, some rights and some voting rights. Can you talk a little bit about corporate government governance and how these companies are governed and what's, what's our role as, as individuals and, and also maybe asset managers or, or, or yeah. of funds? 
And basically, every share comes with a vote. That's just the way it works. So this is the most perfect democracy you can get. You have, well, I say it's not completely perfect because obviously some people have more shares than other people. Some people have more votes than other people. But basically, one share, one vote. And that means that shareholders should be the ones who tell companies how to behave. Um, now, if you, if you go back, let's, let's do a little history, actually, because it's always quite interesting to look at it from, from this angle. When the limited liability company was first invented, it was possibly the most amazing innovation ever. It was the thing that allowed all our industrial revolutions, the things that you know allowed uh, companies to raise money uh, that they could put towards risky endeavors because it was only the limited liability company that allowed investors to put in money and only lose what they had put in. Before that, you'd be liable for all the debts that a company had if it went bust, right? So investing was an extremely dangerous game. So you could only do it in small groups where with absolute trust, etc. Once you got a limited liability company with a board of directors and shareholders just being able to put in money and never lose more than they put in, the risk levels fell dramatically. So it became possible to raise large amounts of money from large amounts of people and invest in extremely exciting things. This is where pretty much all the economic and technological innovation for the last couple of hundred has come from. Amazing, right? However, even when they first, start, first started, people began to say, well, there could be a problem here. So if shareholders are very, very diverse, they're all over the place, they can't get together to chat uh, and, and control the directors, you end up in a, in a position where it is the directors that end up running the company. And that's what we call managerial capitalism, where the managers effectively have control of something that doesn't belong to them, that belongs to shareholders. We had that for a while. And then we moved towards something called shareholder capitalism, where uh, a seminal article written by Milton Friedman back in uh, 1970, where he said, look, we have to change this. And what we do is we give the managers one goal and one goal only. If we give them that goal, everything else will fall into place. And that goal must be to make as much money as possible for shareholders, to return everything possible to the shareholder. So we give them that profit motive. And around the edge of that will come all the good stuff that you like, like a really good company will by default keep, treat its suppliers well, or by default treat its customers well, etc. because that's just how you, how you hang on uh, running a company over the long term. So we had shareholder capitalism. Now the problem became that the shareholders became a different group of people. So you and I, we don't really own shares themselves anymore, or some of us do. We own shares on, on platforms such as Hungry Lansdowne or Interactive Investor or AJ Bell, etc. So some of us own individual shares in individual companies. But gradually during the 70s and 80s, we tended to stop holding individual shares and start holding units in funds. So uh, lots of money bought together and invested as a group in, uh, in different sets of shares run by fund managers. So suddenly, the shareholder, while well, we are the end shareholder, the beneficial owner, the rights of the shareholder don't go to us, they go to the fund manager. So the fund manager has all the votes. So the democracy in the system disappears. Suddenly the owner doesn't have the vote, the fund manager has the vote, and he doesn't just have some of the votes, he's got millions and millions and millions of votes. So suddenly we have money manager capitalism or fund manager capitalism, where companies are effectively ordered around by big fund managers. 
And gradually we've got to the point with the rise of, of passive investing and the huge participation in markets in both the US and the UK, where you effectively have companies uh, controlled, should they want to control them, by a couple of huge fund managers, so State Street, uh, Vanguard, BlackRock. Uh, these companies between them effectively have controlling states in, in almost every large company in the world. And that's where we run into the problem that I'm trying to address in the book, which is to say, hang on, this isn't right. And this is probably why we all feel so very unengaged, because we are, because we are owners, but we don't have the rights that come with being an owner and we don't act like owners. We've delegated all that uh, ownership power to a very, very small group of people who are using it in ways that may be good, may be bad. Or are actually not using it at all. Well, very often not using it at all. And that's yeah. been a long-term problem. You know, the, the fund managers just, just sit there on the edge and they don't use the power that they have. Although increasingly they are using it. And yep. we do see a lot of fund managers, one of the things that they will constantly go on about is how they are active owners and inside <laughs> uh, various reports. And on their websites, you will see lists of all the votes that they have participated in. And they take it as a sort of badge of pride to say we've voted on 95% or 90% of the resolutions available to us. But of course, you know, if they just vote the way their directors want all the time, what's the point of that? Um, and then you'll get reports saying, well, this is where we disagreed with, with the management or, or this is where maybe we have actively engaged with the management to explain why we disagree. So this kind of thing is, is, is increasingly happening. However, if them using their votes doesn't really help us any, unless we agree with how they've used their votes. I mean, so for example, um, one of the things much discussed over the last five years or so is the, the uh, energy transition and climate change resolutions, etc. And the big fund managers have got to a point where they've, they've been voting sort of one way on this stuff. And it's not necessarily the case that individual investors would have voted the same way. I mean, for example, Now that the oil and gas prices are incredibly high and we're beginning to say, oh God, maybe we've, we've uh, moved away from these businesses too quickly. Is it the case that the ordinary investor might have wanted uh, Shell to invest less in renewables and to keep going with drilling for oil and gas? Mm. Don't know, but it's possible, but nobody ever asked them. Yeah. And these are huge things that we're kind of being left out of. And it's also the case that maybe... Uh, individual investors would prefer less focus on, say, social issues and environmental issues at companies and more focus on, you know, making money. And you talk in the book about individual investors and actually, do we know what we want? <laughs> That's exactly right. Very often we do not know what we want. Um, but until we're asked to think about it, we will <laughs> never know. Um, you know, so at the moment it is possible, obviously, for people who have individual shares in companies to use yep. those votes. And In the main, in the past, they have not used those votes, largely because it's been very difficult to do so. You know, back in the old days, before the rise of the investment platforms, if you held individual shares, you knew exactly what you could do with them. You got the annual report in the post. You got an invitation to the AGM. You yeah. just had to turn up to vote. You had bits of paper that made it clear that you were the owner of these shares. 
Now, the rise of the investment platforms over the last uh, 25 years or so has been absolutely amazing. I mean, I remember when Hargreaves Lansdowne first became a thing and you could have all your investments on one platform. So yeah. easy, so efficient, trade online, etc. Absolutely brilliant. But in the process, the technical ownership of your shares shifted from you to the platforms. Suddenly, they have the votes. Now, they've always been allowed you to take your vote when you wanted to effectively take a, a proxy of your own vote. But it involves admin, or it has in the past involved admin. You have to write a letter. You have to get a, a proxy letter from them to give to the, the company when you go to the AGM, etc. And until quite recently, these platforms charged you. Often they charge you a tenner to get your own vote. Outrageous, wow. right? Um, but that, that has changed as well. So, for example, Interactive Investor now have a system where you are opted in as opposed to opted out of your own rights. So you don't have to do any admin to get your vote. Your vote is just there and you're told when a vote is coming up and you vote. And they have found that as a result of doing it like that, cutting the admin burden for people, um, the pe number of people who use their votes has gone up very fast. So people do want to use their votes. What they don't want to do is admin. And I totally get that. I hate admin more than anything in the world. <laughs> if you put an admin barrier in front of me, I will be stopped by that barrier almost every time. So the platform's making it easier for individuals individuals to vote shows us that individuals do want to vote and it also shows us to a degree what people like to vote on so for example people in particular like to vote on uh, CEO remuneration yeah retail investors really hate it when the CEOs of companies companies that they have not founded companies that they possibly haven't even expanded companies yep. that they're going to be in charge of for maybe four or five years can earn enough from say a five-year term to transform the financial fortunes of their families for decades to come generations to come now we don't like that we don't like that at all and very often we would like to vote against that well certainly we'd like to hear a little bit more explanation about how it works so that's an example of something where we know how people will vote we know what they'd like to vote on there's lots of other things that, that that we don't know but there are also a few interesting little companies springing up around the place that are giving us a, an opportunity to show how we might or might not vote even if we don't hold shares directly so there is it's huge progress yeah and you're, you're talking the book i mean you, you're giving like six very practical tips around you know what can people do so i'd love to hear you know these tips and you also mentioned tumelo so georgia stewart she come she came on the podcast uh, she came a few times to talk to us and she's building this amazing solution also to help empower like retail investors to actually vote yeah, she is i mean she she is fantastic her company is fantastic and it's doing exactly exactly what i think should be done so you know it's very difficult to say Every person should get to use their vote over every share or fraction of share that they own via a middleman, via a fund. This is, I mean, it's not technologically impossible, by the way, it really isn't. It's just that, you know, that would mean us having to, to vote or find an opinion on, you know, 17, 18,000 resolutions a year. And when I say there are admin barriers, there are admin barriers in terms of who is going to sit down and want to do that. And lots of the resolutions we aren't going to want to vote on. We're not interested. We don't really care. Maybe we should care, but we don't really care who the auditors are or how long people have been the auditors, etc. And mostly maybe we don't care about the directors unless they've done something wrong or something we disapprove of or they paid too much and we'd like them to go. So those things we don't want to vote on. But what Tumalo does is it works with the fund managers to create a, a platform where you can go and you can see exactly what equities, what shares are held inside whatever fund it is that you own units in. And then you can see what those companies do and you can see what resolutions are coming up that you may or may not find interesting. And then you can express your opinion opinion on those resolutions that's not that's not something that is binding for the fund manager but it's something that they can definitely pay attention to so that's really important 
And if, if every fund manager was using a system like this, it would be amazing, amazing. Um, so one thing that you can do is you can write to your fund manager and you can ask them to use this system. You can say to them, hey, look, I see that LNG and Aviva are working with Tumulo to do that. And I would love that. So that's something you can do, write to them. And even if you're not going to write to them about that, you can write to them to say, you know, I have opinions and I'd like you to know what my opinions are. These are the bits that I feel seriously about that I think are important. There should be something on your website where I can express that. Uh, there is also, uh, it would be very useful if we could, I'm very against layering regulation, by the way, on companies and on fund managers, quite a lot of that already, but much, much better transparency from the pension companies in particular. So if you get a pension statement every year, I get mine and it's a couple of random numbers and really they are very, very badly done. The, um, the transparency is awful. They don't say to me, these are the companies that you hold. This is what your holdings mean. Uh, this is how we have voted on your companies for you. And this is how you can get in touch with us if you don't feel that's okay. None of that is there. That should be there. Um, so the first thing to do is for us to, if we're individual investors, use our votes. If we're invested through funds, push our fund managers to transferring some of the rights of ownership to us from them. And there is, again, there is progress here. So BlackRock, one of the uh, huge companies uh, in, in based in the US, but owns uh, large percentages of, of, of companies everywhere. They recently put, a, put through a system whereby they allow some of their clients to use their votes themselves. Now, this is a matter of large fund manager transfers power to other large fund managers. So it's not quite what we're after, but it's getting there. And Larry Fink, the, the CEO of BlackRock, he did say uh, in his last letter to investors that he expects at some point in the future, there'd be a time when individual investors will have that power as well. So, you know, this is coming. This is coming. So these are the two main bits. You know, let's use our votes where we can. Let's put pressure on fund managers to return some power to us. Let's put pressure on fund managers to provide more and better information on their stewardship and to let us uh, ask them to take our views into account and then either agree with our views or to explain why they haven't. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important and could make a huge change would be to ask companies, and again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm saying more regulation here when I'm instinctively against regulation, but, you know, my regulation works, right, um, is to make directors really care by making it so that one director on every board is responsible for the relationship with retail investors, responsible for uh, making sure that the company is looking out for its end beneficiaries, not with the big fund managers. There's plenty of investors, relations people uh, being responsible for the relationship between companies and their big institutional investors. What I'm talking about here is saying to one non-executive investor, hey, look, do you know what? You're responsible for the end owners, the people who are actually going to attempt in their retirement to live off the dividends or the capital gains from this company. So think about that and think about them, think about what they want and think about the amount of money that you can return to them. Stop thinking about, uh, you know, identity politics, start thinking about money. So there are a few, sorry, there are a few other sort of smaller things that we can do. I mean, I want to be absolutely clear, for example, that all companies should continue to have physical AGMs. Yeah. There was a period in the pandemic when no one was having physical AGMs. And even when digital AGMs were not uh, open 
to individual shareholders, beyond outrageous. So there has to be a future where there are hybrid AGMs where you can attend physically if you would like, because you know that puts pressure on uh, directors and the whole point of an AGM is that directors should feel the pressure. Um, but also that people can uh, attend digitally, which I think is a, a would be a wonderful advance because it means older people who ne don't necessarily want to travel but who feel very engaged, younger people who are at work and uh, can't travel but also want to feel engaged can participate in AGMs uh, digitally. And that I think will bring us a little closer to the companies we're invested in, in a way that back in the old days, you know, we were saying that... Uh, 20, 30 years ago, everyone knew that they were shareholders and they knew the companies that they were shareholders in. One of the dynamics that was shareholder perks. So, yeah, yeah you know, you've got discounts on the goods from companies that you had um, shares in. There are some companies that, that do that. You know, you could go along to Marks and Spencer's and say, I'm a shareholder and get 10% off. That kind of thing. If we were to bring that back so people had an actual sense of, of the businesses, of the businesses they were invested in, I, I think that would... That would be good. Can you give me one example that you've seen in the recent years of successful shareholder activism? Well, actually, there's been quite a lot recently, but there's there's one coming up, which I, I think is really interesting, which is at, at Amazon. And they have their AGM next week. I think it's on Wednesday. And there's another interesting little company. It's a, an activist investment platform. It's called Tulip Share. And uh, they've managed to get a, a resolution about how workers are treated. Uh, so they want to get a, a, a sort of look into the general welfare of, of Amazon workers. And, you know, that's a really interesting one because I suspect that is one of the things that retail investors are particularly interested in. Thousands of investors have already expressed their interest in the campaign, for example. And if individual investors had the ability to vote on a resolution like that, and basically it's just calling for a, a sort of independent audit of the way workers are treated at, in Amazon warehouses. Uh, I think that's exactly the kind of thing that retail investors are interested in and, and would want to see. So yeah. that's a very interesting one coming up that I think people should keep an eye on. Thank you so much, Marin. I have some quick questions now just about money. You wrote a book in 2008 called Love is Not Enough mm -hmm. <laughs> um, about women and money. Do you think we're in a better place now? Oh, I do. I absolutely do. Um, because apart from anything else, I mean, you know, there is, I know we talk a lot about the gender pay gap, but there really is no such thing anymore as people doing the same kind of work with the same hours and yep. being paid different amounts. It just doesn't happen anymore. So the gender pay gap, such as it is, is now much more about different types of work, part-time working, etc. Yep. Um, Auto-enrollment pensions, I think, I mean, a huge step forward for women because it means that, you know, we do have pensions. They might not be, uh, you know, if we don't work full-time, we don't work all the way through, they're not going to be as large at the end as they might be for people who do work full-time work all the way through but uh you know they exist and that is a step forward and of course you know the whole working from home dynamic over the last yeah. couple of years has, has changed changed the relationship between uh, work and life and i think that's that's good for women as well as long as we don't take it too far because it's important to remember that whether you like it this way or not uh, the people who get on are very often also the people who are seen and that book by the way is very out of date Very <laughs> The general principles in it are absolutely sound, but do not go to that book looking for advice <laughs> on pensions or ISIS because everything has changed so dramatically since I wrote it. But it was fascinating to see a you know, different approach on finances. And I guess it was one of the first books for you know, women and money. It was. I felt very strongly about it because I found, I remember finding one of the reasons I wrote that was suddenly realizing that I had so many friends who were high-flying career yeah. women and had no idea what an ISA was. Yeah. or what a pension was, or how they should be managing their, their personal finances. Yeah. Even even people who are fund managers, you know, running money for other people, have absolutely no idea how to run their, run their own finances. 
Thank you so much, Marine. Thank you for having me. Be sure to share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. Please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. I will be chatting with Kathy Harrison about how people benefit from financial planning.